are you clapping? Oh, well, good well, evening. I was um, wondering why they were clapping. Yeah, they haven't done we haven't said a word yet. Uh, we'll see if they change their mind by the time we're all done here. Uh, I'm David Sanger from uh, the New York Times, and uh, more importantly, uh, a, a graduate of the college uh, here. And I'm delighted to be here tonight with uh, General Michael Flynn, who um, graduated from the University of Rhode Island in 1981 and uh, was in the 82nd Airborne uh, Division, uh, which means that if he doesn't like the uh, questions, he'll just pull the parachute and uh, right, ma make his way out. Um, General Flynn has been in uh, the military side of intelligence for uh, many years, uh, and our uh, full biography of him is in, your, um, uh, is in your flyer here today. But what we thought we would try to do today is talk a little bit about um, the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, not an intelligence agency that you often hear as much about as, say, the CIA or uh, the NSA in recent uh, days, but uh, one of the nation's largest and most important of the intel agencies. Um, then we're going to talk a bit about some big global changes, some global hotspots, and um, some big issues like cyber that have been uh, coming along. And then uh, after that, we're going to um, turn to uh, all of you and uh, get your questions uh, as well. Um, so General Flynn, thank you very much for coming to Harvard and uh, coming here today. Um, there are 16 different intelligence agencies in the US government, which is astounding when you think about it. Um, tell us how the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, is different from the others, and uh, how its mission uh, is particularly different. So first, uh, let me just say thanks for inviting me and to be here tonight. It's a great uh, opportunity for me to share some ideas and, and, uh, and share some, uh, some huge issues that our country's involved in with, uh, in terms of national security. Uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, there's, there's actually there's 16 agencies or 16 organizations in the intelligence community. There are what we call the Big Five, and the Big Five are the Defense Intelligence Agency, Central Intelligence Agency, National Geospatial Agency, the, um, the National Reconnaissance Office, and, uh, and National Security Agency. So those, those are the sort of make up the, the broader um, uh, components of the, of the intelligence community. DIA is the only agency with defense in its name. So we are responsible for defense uh, intelligence for everybody from the President of the United States on down to all of what we call our combatant commanders and our war fighters to our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines that are out there sort of on the nation's edge. Uh, just to give you a scale of what DIA is, DIA is about 17,000 people. We're in 141 countries around the world. Uh, we have uh, people that speak, you know, over 60 different languages. We have, you know, that we cover that that range of languages from uh, from our agency. We are primarily, though, a defense all-source intelligence agency. So we don't do signals intelligence. That's the National Security Agency. We don't do uh, imagery intelligence or geospatial intelligence. That's the National Geospatial Agency. We do all-source. So we take 
open source and we take all the other ints, if you will, all the other intelligence systems and sources that we have and we bring it all together. So when somebody wants to know what are the intentions or the capabilities of a particular uh, threat or challenge or some entity that we, that we may face out there in the future, we're the ones that have to answer that, uh, that question. Uh, I, I mentioned to David that um, we also provide for the nation, we are the top secret communications provider for, uh, for not only the Defense Department, but for the, but for the nation writ large. We have I was a White House correspondent for six years, and wherever the president goes, there's a DIA con uh, contingent that yeah. goes with him for the White House Communications Agency, yeah. is that right? And that's right, and we, we, have, uh, we service about 230,000 uh, customers around the world. Uh, with basically top secret communications. And that's actually one of the most uh, secure, protected systems that we have uh, in the world and definitely in our system. So that's kind of give you a, a, a broad scope of, of DIA, you know, who we are, the size, what we do, but really defense and we provide all source intelligence assessments for, uh, like I said, from the president on down to our war fighters out there on the battlefield. So we'll get to specific hotspots in a moment, but you spent a lot of time thinking, I just know from our, our own conversations, about the big global changes that change the world that you are trying to assess. Energy, water scarcity, food issues, food mm -hmm. scarcity, urbanization, the movement. I think you said earlier today that, what, 400 million people will be moving into cities in China just in the next... Within the next 10 to 15 10 years. 10 to 15 years. That's just in China alone. Just in China alone. It's more than the entire population of the United States right. moving from country to uh, urban areas. And then, of course, the huge increase in information technologies, which we'll get into a bit. Um, why are these issues that DIA has to spend their time on? Well, I would just tell you that there, when we look at... Uh, where we are today and the scale and, and the scope of some of the security challenges that we face around the world, we also, you know, that's sort of the here and now. We also have to be thinking about the future, your future, particularly for a lot of these young faces that I see out here. You know, and I'll just give you some, some a little bit of background. You know, in 1950, post-World uh, War II, 1950, there was a global census taken. At that time, uh, the, the, the number count for people on the planet was about 2.3 billion. Fast forward to 2010, just a couple of years ago, they did another global census, and that time it was about 6.8 billion. So prior to 1950, you know, from the time there was a human being walking on the planet up, up until 1950, a couple of billion people. In 60 years, the size of the population of the planet tripled. By 2050, it's expected to multiply by five. So we're looking at somewhere as close to about 10 billion people on the planet by the middle of this century. And all of that move, it looks at the, as we, as we assess this, the, the security environment, all of that move ten, is, is going to go to the urban centers. You know, and so urbanization is clearly on the rise. As David just mentioned, 400 million Chinese within the next 10 to 15 years are expected to move into cities just in China alone. So when you begin to think about the scale of the numbers of people and then where those people are actually growing. So 
it's not in what I would call the Western world. You know, the Western world, which would be the United States, uh, West Europe, maybe parts of East Europe, the population rates are about anywhere from about 0.5 to about two uh, children per family. In, in other parts of the sort of the un, uh, undeveloped or less than developed world, it ranges from about six to 10. So we're looking at places on the planet where there are going to be large numbers of people in, in, uh, in locations where there are, uh, there are not the strength of institutions that we uh, take for granted in this country, like rule of law, you know, uh, healthcare institutions, um, you know, certainly uh, legal institutions and, um, you know, medical and those kinds of things, education, things like that. So we are going to face a challenge with uh, access to and not only security, but also when, uh, when we start talking about access to food, access to water, access to energy resources, you know, we take it for granted that this mic's working and these lights come on, you know, you go and you, and you run the water in the morning to brush your teeth. Many places on the planet, that doesn't happen. And in many places on the planet, there are places where there's no electricity, but there's lot, you know, lots of people, millions in many cases. So these are security challenges that have changed quite a bit. The other component of that is the information age. So, you know, most of you, as I look around this room, are on Facebook. Well, Facebook actually popped up in February, roughly February of 2005. You know, today, you know, it's whatever, the third largest planet or third largest country in the world, right? We have billions of people, about three billion. Uh, General uh, Flynn not only popped up, but it was actually invented right across yeah, the street. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, I, you know, the, the the information age or the the advent of the information age. Fifty percent of the population on the planet is supposed to be connected by the internet by 2017 alone. Again, in this country, we take it for granted. On the on the continent of Africa, there are about 47 percent of the global cell phone market is on the continent of Africa. So many of you don't understand when I say we, we move from two pair copper wire on this, in this country to you know, 3G and 4G. The people in Africa moved right into 4G communications capabilities. So all they know is, is what they have. And, and with that comes you know, a big challenge because when we start to think about uh, social media and Twitter and how movements are shaped, and for those of you that have paid attention or will pay attention to what is going on in the sort of the Arab spring, so to speak, a lot of that has been shaped because they've, been, they've had access to information. And one of the things that we are going to have to do from a security standpoint, we're going to have to figure out how do we put sort of microphones over those societies to try to figure out what is going on, what are the underlying problems that they face. Those become huge security issues that we're going to be dealing with uh, that you're going to be dealing with as I look around this room at some of the young folks. Well, General Flynn, we'll get to the microphones over those societies in, in uh, just a bit because that's obviously been one of the uh, bigger issues facing the intel world lately. I wanted to just turn you just before we get to some specific issues. Um, I think when you and I first met, it was around the time that you had written this um, fascinating report called Fixing Intel, a Blueprint for Making Intelligence uh, Relevant in Afghanistan. And this was at the moment that you were beginning to take analysts who normally sat at their desks in Washington and began to push them out in the field the way covert operatives have been out in the field for many years. But the idea was to actually 
begin to get them collecting much more at a ground level and tighten up that loop so they weren't sitting there to wait for information. In fact, at one point in this report, and this was the nicest thing I've ever seen the intel world say about my profession, uh, that one of the things you were doing was select teams of analysts who will be empowered to move between field elements much like journalists to visit collectors of information at the grassroots level, carry that information back with them to the regional command level. And then you went on with a number of other um, ideas about how you would basically shorten up those loops. So four years later, how well have you done on your fixing Intel blueprint? So the, um, the idea is to get what I describe as a fingertip feel for the operational environment, regardless of the operational environment that you're in. That in this case in Afghanistan, it was a battlefield. So what uh, I felt uh, we lacked was a real strong fingertip feel for what was going on at the local level. And I felt like we had a great handle on, on the sort of the enemy that we were facing. But I didn't think that we had a grip on, um, on what was going on, because this was a really local issue. This was a tribal local issue. So we needed to do that. So you know, we tend to think of you know, Washington, D.C. or the headquarters as the, as the center and not the edge. And what I really wanted to try to do was to get our analysts to feel part of that edge and to get them out. So we created, in the, you know, one of the solutions that we developed was what we call these stability ops uh, intel centers. And from there, analysts would go out with operational forces and help in the effort to gather uh, information. In fact, we call them in their information gatherers to be able to gain that sort of that fingertip feel to have a better sense of what was going on. And you also have, you've had for some time, but I think you've accelerated some, the Defense Clandestine Service, which is a, mm -hmm. uh, basically parallel with what the CIA has as the National Clandestine Service. Tell us what, what they would do, how it would differ from, say, what a CIA officer would do. Yeah. So, it, and it's, it's uh, not necessarily parallel. What it is, it's a, it complements human intelligence requirements that we have for national security needs. The Defense Clandestine Service is, as it says, it's defense and it supports uh, defense needs when required, though, because we are also uh, part of the national intelligence effort. When re uh, required, they can also be uh, tasked or, or you know, required to go after national needs as well. Uh, the, if there's anything that we learned in the last decade of operating in these different environments, particularly as I just described sort of the, the human environment that we're facing out there, is the need for more human intelligence. And from our perspective, ours being the Department of Defense and defense needs, we need to know, again, intentions, capabilities of some of the threats and adversaries that we face. And we need to have people that are schooled, so to speak, trained, uh, you know, who are military professionals and understand what the kinds of things are that we're going after to be able to address some of those needs. And that's really where the Defense Clandestine Service uh, it, its real niche is, is in that uh, realm. And we work very, very closely in a very tightly integrated way with our partners at the national level. So let's turn to a very specific problem that you've had and have began to get uh, really as soon as you left uh, Afghanistan, um, and that's Syria. So at the opening of the Arab Spring, if I remember this right, all the intel agencies were providing assessments 
to the president and talking about them publicly, that they thought that uh, Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, would probably be gone by the summer of 2011. You'll remember that the, the actual first protests um, began three years ago this week mm -hmm. in the Damascus uh, markets. So here we are three years out. We have a civil war whose scope is beyond anything I think any of us had imagined at that time. You have an area between Iraq and Syria that many are concerned is becoming a new training ground for al-Qaeda affiliates. Um, give us a sense first of just what the scope of what you're facing there is today. Yeah, so and there's, th this, is, this is something that I think for all of us, you know, this audience that's here in this room and frankly for anybody else that listens to this, uh, we're gonna be dealing with for quite a while. Um, and let me just talk you know, I'll, I'll stay inside of Syria for a bit, but I think that there's, you know, there's regional and international implications for whatever the outcome is. Um, you know, on the opposition side, because that's probably one of the most, it's probably one of the most complex things that we're dealing with, never mind on the, on the Syrian and Bashar al-Assad side. Um, and I'll talk to some things that we've already sort of stated in, in public. Um, the you know the number of groups that we we believe that make up this opposition, uh, it ranges around 1,500 different groups just inside of inside of Syria alone. 1,500 groups comprising how many people? Yeah, th so that that number roughly you know approximately is about a hundred thousand people in the opposition of you know that that make up these 1,500 groups. So the, some of these things are ten people. Some of these groups could be, you know, the small numbers. Mm -hmm. They could be, um, you know, some are larger, and there are clearly some that are that are uh, that are dangerous. Inside of that opposition are what we now define as a, extremist, you know, extremist elements, and that number, roughly, uh, is uh, is at about twenty five, maybe up to thirty thousand. So you can begin to see, again, you know, and, and everything's clear in hindsight, but you begin to see the, the scale of the opposition. And then the, the real challenge these days that um, is of concern to the international community is the foreign element inside of this extreme, of the extremist group inside of Syria. That foreign element you know, equates out to about 7,000 foreigners from around you know, quite a few countries around the world, some from Europe, some from United States, some from Asia, uh, some from Africa. So that foreign element, the, the you know, as you've written about and as you've seen, and, uh, and I think you know, hopefully is being discussed here. You know, wh what is it happens to them once they decide that, you know, that they've done enough inside of Assyria and they decide to what we are are beginning to see as an outflow coming out of Syria and then returning, you know, back to their uh, countries of origin. That's a real that's a real concern because even those they, they may be small in number coming back, uh, they're very dangerous because they've gained experience, they've gained some training because there are uh, we do know that there are camps inside of uh, you know certainly inside of Syria where there's some training going on, um, and it's it's and a, they're beginning to flow back out. Yeah, very and a, like just that side alone is very very complex, and so from a from an intelligence perspective. Uh, assessing the who's who in the in the camp there, 
uh, and trying to trying to precisely, uh, you know, uh, advise our leadership on who to deal with and how to deal with them uh, is a is a monumental problem. We reported in this morning's paper an example of how what kind of decisions a president's having to make about who to deal with that's drawing on your intel. The example we gave was that for several years now, President Obama has been very reluctant to give advanced weapons, including man pads, for example, mm -hmm. these portable uh, anti-aircraft uh, uh, weapons, um, to the rebel groups. Because as we learned in Afghanistan, once you hand it off, you have no idea who's ultimately going to get it. And obviously, there's a lot of civilian airliners flying in this region. You don't want those weapons turned against US forces and all that. And yet, you've got this incredible humanitarian problem now, where we're seeing barrel bombs being dropped on Syrian civilians from helicopters. And the civilians are saying, we have no way mm -hmm. to um, combat these helicopters without anti-aircraft. So tell us, using that as sort of an example, or maybe you've got a better example, what is the president, what are, your, what are the commanders in the region looking for from you to help judge, make the judgment about whether or not to more heavily arm the rebels? Are they looking to understand who the rebels are? Are they looking to understand how the weapons would be used? What are they asking you for? Yeah, so uh, for, the, for the students primarily, you know, sort of a 30 seconds on what Intel does and what policy decides. So what David's asking me is, is you know, how do we assess the, the situation and the framework of what we're facing because some of the actions that come out of that assessment are then policy decisions by the president in this case to decide on, on how to respond, what right. to what who, to, who is going to give weapons to, to who provide. is not. So, so um, our, we're being asked today, as I just highlighted the, the opposition, we're also being asked for um, the, the region's assessment. What do we assess the region sees and feels, you know, Iran, Lebanon, Saudis, Egyptians, you know, Israelis, Jordanians, I mean, all these different countries, Iraq, that make up the, the sort of the, the, the trans-region area. We're being asked, to ass what, is our, what is our assessment of, of how those countries perceive what's going on and, and what, what are they doing on any given day and how might they respond to something? We're also being assessed or asked to assess uh, the the internals of uh, what is happening in Syria and if this scenario or if that scenario, given what you're asking, what might be the outcome? What might be the likelihood of, uh, of something you know, additional occurring? And, and I will tell you, uh, again, it's, uh, I, you know, for, the, for the president today uh, to have to make the decisions that, that, uh, that, that are being contemplated, it's a very, very difficult place. And, the best that we can do and the best that we should do is, is make sure that we give as complete an assessment of every single you know, scenario, option, angle that we can possibly contemplate for, uh, for you know, the, the potential outcomes of what might happen. But that could be a short term. And as I said, we didn't get right as a mm -hmm. country how long Assad would be around or how long Kim Jong-un would you know, how, how well he would do in North Korea. But then you're also asked to much, do a much longer term assessment. So 
for example, if this goes on for two or three more years, would the map of Syria necessarily look the way the map of Syria looks like today? Yeah, I, I think that, um, and this is a great, this is really one of the $64,000 questions. What is the outcome of this thing? You know, what is the likelihood? So you have to uh, look at a whole range of scenarios that, that are, that are, you know, that are likely to occur because, again, this is something that, you know, mainstream America probably doesn't really care about. But if you're in the national security arena of the United States, you've got to care about it. Uh, so you look, you've got to consider history. You've got to consider the current situation. And you have to consider, you know, as you're saying, what, what is, how much longer does this go and what happens? So uh, a scenario, a, a, definite, a, a definite possibility or a possible scenario is, is the potential for a fragmenting of the region into, you know, the, the borders were, were put in in the beginning of the last century, you know, and, and so we have to be thinking about what might the region look like if this thing continues on and goes in a direction that nobody really wants it to, to do. And this is one of the reasons it's so hard for President Obama, I assume, that, you know, you had a fragmented extremist mm -hmm. Sunni state within what is now Syria, then he's dealing with a problem that could be as hard as having Assad in place. Yeah. And, you know, and do they become uh, nations, you know, nation states who will contribute? Or do they just become, you know, a, a piece of the landscape and, and very, you know, um, almost conflict zones? Um, I'm sure we'll come back to Syria some in the Q&A, but let me move on to um, Edward Snowden, an issue that you, we've all been discussing a lot about. He worked for, as a contractor for the NSA, not the DIA. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's not a morning you don't get up and say, that's actually an improvement, right? Uh, that's, that, that's, that's, that's good news. Yeah. Um, but you recently completed a report about what kind of damage you did. And my memory of your testimony in, uh, in uh, Congress uh, recently during the threat assessment testimony was that roughly two-thirds of the material that he had taken uh, or that he had had access to, you said you had assumed he had taken it, but that he had access to, you believe was more of a military nature than about, say, domestic surveillance, whatever the NSA was doing mm -hmm. to tell, uh, collect the metadata from the phone calls that everybody in this room makes and, and others. What does that tell you? Yeah, so the first, I just, you know, to talk a little bit about the National Security Agency, because uh, I've worked uh, with them. Uh, they, uh, the men and women in the National Security Agency are extraordinary uh, Americans who come to work, and they're just like you. I mean, you know, they're a bunch of young people who are incredibly dedicated to this country, and they, and they are uh, doing what they're asked to do, and they do it in, a, in an extraordinary way. And I, I personally know that they have saved lives uh, on, on the battlefield and in, and in many other places around the world, uh, even for, uh, for our partner nations that, that we work with. So uh, the the scale of this um, problem that, uh, that Edward Snowden has uh, caused, uh, we, we describe it, we define it as, as causing grave damage to the United States. 
Uh, it's not grave damage to NSA. Obviously, it's had an enormous impact on the workforce at NSA. It's not grave damage to the Department of Defense. It's had an enormous impact on the Department of Defense. It is grave damage to the United States of America. And, you know, considering, and again, sort of hindsight, all the ways that he could have, you know, done what he, what he has sort of stated what he wanted to do, there's a lot of other ways to do that. Um, and the uh, scale of the problem, it kind of, I think, personally, I think it kind of got lost in the metadata and the very technical things that were going on at NSA and, you know, were they listening to, you know, conversations at, at home when actually it, it really, when we start to look at it, as we have examined this thing uh, fairly thoroughly now, we're still in the process of examining the impact, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what he touched that we assumed he took uh, have nothing to do with NSA, have nothing to do with the NSA sort of quote-unquote collection or listening programs that they have, which are all, you know, legal, by the way, and, and, and constantly um, uh, briefed to Congress. Uh, most of it was, uh, or majority of it was defense-related. So if he was only going after, uh, you know, NSA to go after NSA, he, he touched a whole bunch of other information. Well, tell us why you think he touched that. I mean, uh, I reported a few weeks ago that he had actually managed to put a web crawler inside the NSA's computer systems. And for those of you who um, aren't computer science majors here, a web crawler basically goes around and indexes and copies everything in its wake so that he could go off and be at work and do his job, and at the end of the day, there would be the data that came down. Do you think he got all this military information because the crawler was just sucking up everything that was in its path, or do you think that he was looking for military information? I, I, you know, big answer is I don't know. Uh, what I would tell you is that uh, the more we look at it, um, you know, the more we begin to, to, we have to make some assumptions about uh, the kinds of information that he, that we know that he ended up touching. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, you keep saying touching. Touching yeah. doesn't mean he took it. T touching doesn't mean he took it, but it, but we have to assume that if he touched it, and in the ways that we are, uh, you know, examining sort of the forensics of, of the kinds of uh, ways that he did did what he did, um, you know, I, my my judgment is that uh, he probably took it, mm -hmm. and so um, so but but you know but at the end of the day we we still don't know because of the way it was done. And do you believe that he was acting on his own, or do you believe that he was acting on behalf of a foreign power? Yeah, we have no evidence that uh, he was acting on behalf of a foreign power. Um, clearly, because of where he's at today, and knowing what I know about you know, the, the Russian system, uh, that there's no doubt that, that they will uh, you know, work him as we would work somebody to try to gain uh, you know, access to what he actually knows and what he did. So there's no, there's, I mean, we should not uh, be naive to not think that they're not, you know, that they're going to do that. In general, a lot of spy scandals have diplomatic impact. This one, it strikes me, may have a bigger economic impact. Think about the things that we've heard in recent days. Angela Merkel, who herself was surprised to discover mm -hmm. that her phone calls were being monitored. Um, 
has declared just in recent days that Germany can go out and create its own protected internet system with its own encryption. The Brazilians have said something similar. Microsoft, meanwhile, at the other end, has said they need to develop encryption systems that the NSA couldn't get inside because they're afraid that all the publicity from all of this will make their foreign buyers think that if you buy a Microsoft product, you're basically going to put data into it that will end up on your desk and your colleagues' desks in a few days or a few weeks. Um, so is the one of the results of this whole set of events that we are going to now see the balkanization of the internet, the, the great unifying force that we've seen in the in the world in the past two decades. Yeah, I, well, I'll tell you, the, you know, it's an interesting, uh, you know, the the whole issue of transparency and secrecy, and you know, and and the game of intelligence, you know, the the, the really serious game of intelligence that's going on around the world and has been, the the, the advent that you know you see and you read about intelligence far more than you ever did than I ever did in college, and certainly even in the first decade or two of being in the service. Um, I think for everyone, everyone has to look at this, this uh, case, and there's there's not only a first order effect, the effect of, you know, what we are already seeing dis being disclosed in the media. There's a second order effect. There's a third order effect. There's a fourth order, a fifth order. There are going to be effects that are going to be military effects, that are going to be economic impacts, that are going to be diplomatic and political impacts, for Many for potentially many years to come, we are we have already seen in the in the uh, in the media reporting that you, that you've seen since disclosures started to come out um, impacts, and so you know we have to judge what those impacts are. From from our standpoint, from my standpoint, right now, uh, our what we're trying to judge is the impacts to our defense capabilities, and uh, those are you know. I mean, others are looking at the impacts to the sort of the diplomatic, the foreign policy uh, areas. But, but I was asking you something different, which is if the world actually ends up dividing up the Internet and individual countries say, mm -hmm. I realize we were all linked together in one happy family, but we now don't trust the NSA just as we don't trust Chinese intelligence and we don't trust Russian intelligence and we don't trust criminal groups that are going after data and targets. Could you face a world in a few years in which the internet has actually been cut up into pieces and you have to go out and examine data in individual sub-segments of it? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. You know, I don't think that's going to happen because I, I think that the uh, just the, the explosion of, of uh, technology, the advancements in technology, the things that I'm seeing uh, for in the world of sort of the, the bigger world of telecommunications, um, I think that that's unlikely. Right. Now, I, I think that there will be, I believe that, and as we're seeing in some cases, there will be you know, dialogues inside of countries, between countries, you know, international forums that are going to, going to explore are these all possibilities uh, and, and should we move in this direction. But I, I just think that the, the global economy and the, and the global information era that we are in and, that, and that's uh, exponentially growing, I think it's unlikely. A related question to that and then we're going to go out to all of this. 
the other big threat you're facing these days are cyber threats. Um, the United States government is spending billions of dollars on cyber defense, which it talks about a lot. Spending billions of dollars on cyber offense, which it talks about very rarely. Um, you've had a recent cyber experience just in the past um, few months with an Iranian attack that made its way into an unclassified part of the Navy's um, uh, and Marine Corps' intranet. Tell us a little bit about that and then what you're seeing in the way of cyber attacks from other countries as well. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the Iran one. Yeah. Uh, well, I won't get into the specifics of it because it's, you know, it's one of these things that we constantly uh, review in our own network, but, um, you know, you, we all have to know, and our, our defense systems, our networks, our defense networks are constantly being probed, being attacked, being, you know, uh, exploited, if you will. And, you know, in some of these cases, what we have to determine the, is the attribution of who's doing it, who's actually, who's actually behind it. Because the thing you have to remember is that behind every one of these attacks, when somebody says a cyber attack, there's a human being sitting at the computer terminal and there's probably another human being that is sort of commanding and controlling or organizing you know, these kinds of efforts. So it's not just machine to machine. This is about human beings and understanding intentions and capabilities. The longer somebody is in your, in your network, obviously the, the more the more you, ha you have to understand how long they've been in there, what they have left behind, and what kind of uh, what kinds of things might they have exploited. And what they have met le left behind may be a sentinel, well, uh, it, an implant, right. it, it could be to be some, able to attack the system right. later. It could be some type of capability that uh, that is new that they're trying out. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different aspects to uh, to cyber, to the world of cyber, as as our adversaries are exploiting our networks. And I will tell you from the defense side, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm confident in how uh, we account for and and protect our defense networks. Not perfect, but but pretty good. Where I'm more concerned about is our other than defense critical infrastructure within our country that constantly power plants, and power plants, banking, financial institutions, transportation systems, healthcare systems, uh, the, the gamut and. Um, and that's an area where there are a lot of weaknesses, and, and, and I, I know that we have, you know, not just state, but we have non-state entities, actors, that are out there working that system. And at the same time, as I said, the United States is also developing offensive weapons. It's, it's not run uh, largely out of DIA, but it does raise the question, does it make it harder for you to defend systems when the world knows that the U.S. is using this as another weapon. I mean, every time there's been a new technology and a new weapon come along, whether it was nuclear or other kind, the United States has been in the lead in developing these weapons as well. So does it make it, does it legitimize the use of cyber weapons that the U.S. is also on the offense while on the defense? Yeah. I, I think that, you know, whether or not something is a, is a weapon system or not is a, that becomes actually kind of a, when we start to talk about you know, the legality of war and things like that, uh, and, I, and I, I will give you this answer. You know, and I think, I think what we have to resolve 
uh, to is that uh, cyber is a capability that allows for, and again, sort of from a defense standpoint, from a national security and defense standpoint, it allows for offensive operations, it allows for defensive operations, it allows for exploitation. Uh, so it has uh, an impact, and it will have an impact. The other aspect of, of sort of warfare is what we call rules of engagement. So we, we, are, we have pretty strict rules of engagement. We follow international law, and, uh, and, and we are accountable for what we do. Some of the uh, states that we face, and definitely the non-state actors that we face, uh, do not necessarily follow that or adhere to that, to, to any sort of strict rule of engagement. And that's one of the, you know, if there's a outcome to everything that we're talking about, there has to be an international conversation about how to operate in this, in this domain or in this space that exists internationally because it exists, it's all around us, and it's clearly having an impact. And we can't just keep going back and forth in this sort of very tactical way and, you know, and, and then something suddenly happens and it causes us to do something physical. Well, that's a great spot to turn it over to all of you. So uh, there are some microphones that are set up. There are two here, and then I think there are two up on the, uh, in the rafter areas. Um, the three uh, rules out here, um, we just ask that you identify yourself, ask one brief question per person with uh, no speeches, and actually end your question with a question mark, <laughs> uh, which sometimes is harder than it seems. We'll start right here with you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Max. Uh, I'm a member of the forum and a freshman at the college. Uh, one of the things you commented is that the NSA programs that the two of you were discussing are both legal and reported to Congress. Um, but a DC district judge, federal judge, just ruled that it's probably unconstitutional. And one thing that's been in the media and given a lot of material to comedians uh, recently is that James Clapper, the DNI, said last year to Congress that there was absolutely no phone, uh, absolutely no intel program recording millions of people's phone conversations. So my question is, on what legal and other bases uh, do you think that those programs are in fact both legal and constitutional and were indeed reported to Congress? Uh, you're a smart kid. <laughs> um, I, I can't address the legal issues and I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not uh, in a position to address the legality other than to say that um, what I am aware of and how uh, the National Security Agency uh, follows what it's been directed to follow uh, is above board and, and, uh, and completely in compliance with uh, what, what uh, the, the sort of the rules that they have been, that they have been given. Um, as far as a judgment, you know, I'll let, I'll let that uh, sort of play out. I, I would say though that, um, you know, we, and, and, I, and as I look at you, you know, as, as a young man, uh, it's, it's, it is about the discussion that we have to have for the direction that we want between, you know, in, uh, security, civil liberties, you know, the freedoms that we, uh, that we cherish. As we go into the future, you know, and as, you, as you're sitting up on a stage like this, you know, in, you know, in 30, 40 years, uh, you know, the, the kinds of challenges and the kinds of things that we are going to face over that period of time, uh, to me, are mind-boggling. I mean, what I have seen 
in 33 years of being in the military are extraordinary. I can't imagine the next 30 years and what, uh, what uh, the, the challenges are that we're going to face. I would tell you, though, that, um, that the, this issue of, of transparency, security, you know, again, the freedoms, the civil liberties, we still have to be accountable. And I would tell you that Flynn's opinion, the National Security Agency is very accountable. They're accountable to the right people, and they, you know, and they, uh, and they do what they're, what they're asked to do. Um, it, it, is, it is going to be a, uh, a, a you know, as I said earlier, the second, third, fourth order effects of what has happened is going to cause us to maybe limit ourselves. We, we may self-limit because, you know, of the, of the challenges that we face, on the, certainly on the legal side. And, and uh, that, that concerns me that, uh, you know, we, we have to be, you know, we have to follow the rule of law, but we also have to protect this country. And so, you know, how we adjust and adapt to whatever rules are, are you know, brought down from on high, uh, I, I hope they're, uh, I hope those kinds of decisions are made by, uh, by people who, who consider sort of the long haul of what we're going to face as a country. General, if I could just build on your answer there for one more moment. You said we may self-limit, which we may well do from this open debate that uh, uh, you've just identified. Had it not been for Snowden, who I, whose techniques I know uh, you've got mm -hmm. a lot of problems with and who said did a lot of damage, would we be having this open debate? And is it a good thing that we are debating this in public? Because I'm not sure the president would have given the speech he gave last month weighing the privacy issues versus the security issues, had Snowden not forced that to happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, I mean that's clearly a, uh, an effect of, uh, of what has occurred. Um, you a know, good effect or a bad effect? Well, I think it's, it's, an, it's an impact. I mean, it, it clearly caused a, uh, an international debate, you know, good or bad, you know, others can judge that. Um, I think from my perspective, you know, as I look at it, uh, you know, was there another way to approach what he wanted, what he says he wanted to do? You know, and if he says that he's won, which he's sort of claimed he's done, mm -hmm. then, then if there's any other information out there, you know, give it back if you've already sort of done what you wanted to do. And that's what I would tell him. Of course, him. it's give digital information. If there could be copies, I'm not sure he could give it all back if he wanted to. If the Russians and the Chinese have it now, as you suggested, not well, likely I, to be I, yeah. handed back, right? Yeah, and well, I would just say that you know, if he if he feels like he's accomplished what he wanted to accomplish, and he does have other information, then and and he believes in the in the, the United States of America, then give it back. Sir, General Bob Goldstein from uh, Senior Executive Fellows Program. Uh, I'd like to get to the uh, the subtitle of the uh, of your lecture. It's the uh, way ahead for defense intelligence, and with sixteen formal agencies or organizations handling intelligence, uh, Defense Department taking heavy hits for, uh, in these days of sequestration, uh, budget cuts. Uh, what you've mentioned so far are burgeoning industries for intelligence, uh, cyber, uh, human. Where do you see the intelligence community going so that efforts are consolidated and it becomes more efficient? Yeah, 
And that's a great question. And, and, and we are, you know, the financial constraints that we face now and in, in, uh, as we project out certainly over the next five years or so, um, we are going to we're taking a very hard look at, um, you know, where we grew quite a bit, for example, counterterrorism, you know, so there's a, there was a huge sort of industry, if you will, to use your word, that, that uh, you know, uh, grew post 9-11, and so we're, you know, we're sort of reshaping that to make sure that we have that about right to address the problems that we face, so there's some, there's some, uh, you know, if we use a, a bad word in government efficiencies that are, that are occurring. I will tell you, for, for, the, uh, for the IC, intelligence community, one of the areas that we're really uh, taking a, a real hard look at is information technology. Uh, information technology, as I mentioned, you know, our customer base is about 230,000. We spend a lot of money on IT across the, uh, across the, the intelligence community. And so we're, we are looking at a range of, of um, you know, sort of collapsing some of our systems, you know, and really moving into, you know, the sort of the cloud environment and leveraging technology in the communications world because IT costs the IC a lot of money. And that's where we think we can find uh, a lot of savings. And in fact, one of the big initiatives right now that Director Clapper uh, has ongoing is the uh, information technology initiative within the USIC. It's probably the single biggest uh, initiative in the uh, US uh, Intel community ever. Does moving into the cloud make you more vulnerable or less vulnerable? Much less. And much can you less. Tell us why? It's a much more secure environment. Uh, you can observe it easier. You can, uh, you know, you can see what's going on. So if uh, there was a Snowden operating in the cloud, you'd be able to tag the individual yeah. and the data together? Yeah, and, that, and in fact, that's exactly how we are, um, that's what we're moving toward. Tag the data and tag the individual. So we know exactly what an individual is doing, because if you're working in government, you know, that's just the way it is. What an individual is doing and when they're doing it, and does somebody come in and start to really, you know, disrupt the system somehow. So it's a much more secure environment. Um, the other area I think that is uh, we're taking a hard look at is open source. Open source is a is a much provides much more of the information environment today. So how do we adjust our analytic, you know, the all source analytic footprint to uh, to leverage the open source community? And I and we know that there's some savings in there. So I mean, from our perspective, from DIA's perspective, we've already taken some big steps in the last uh, year that have avoided millions of dollars of cost, millions of dollars of cost, and also reduced uh, our reliance on, on contractors because we grew quite a, few, quite a few contractors over the last uh, decade, and uh, we just don't have that luxury because we don't have the money to do it anymore, and so our reliance on contractors has to go down quite a bit. That they came at a cost, and those, those kinds of capabilities uh, we are moving away from. And so that means we have to do smart things like uh, invest in the, you know, to continue to invest in the people that we have, so our own sort of professional workforce and, uh, you know, education, training, professional development is an area where we're, we're actually putting a lot of money uh, behind to make sure that we take this what I would kind of call a period of 
of uh, acceptable risk over these next probably five, maybe 10 years or so, about as far out as we can see, and ensure and assure that we are training, educating, and developing the workforce that we do have. Because for us, uh, we've had about 6,000 of our civilian employees have deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan over the last decade. So we've got to, and most of them are in their 20s and 30s. We've got to take them and, and prepare them for the next future. And that's a big aspect of where we're investing. And, and that comes at the cost of some of the money that we've put into contracting over the years. Question right here. Hello, I'm Jacob. I'm a freshman at the college. Uh, some journalists have argued that the amount of information that a lot of these intelligence agencies collect is just so large, it's hard to effectively manage. How have you dealt with that at the DIA, and do you think it's a serious problem that you're currently dealing with? Yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, and I'm glad to see that we have at least one Patriots fan in here. Um, it's a huge problem, and that's the, you know, that's the argument. You know, you, it's kind of like, you know, you s people describe it as you got a stack of, you know, a haystack of needles and you're trying to find a needle, you know? So, um, you know, there are, uh, there are tools that we do have, but uh, you also need to, to ruthlessly prioritize what it is that you're trying to find. You know, and I used this analogy before, it's kind of like if you've ever been to a beach and you see the, the guy down there with the, with the device and he's sifting sand at the beach, you know, and he's trying to find, you know, somebody's wedding band or something, or he's trying to find a golden nugget. Well, you know, he's got an entire beach to, to, to collect on. Maybe the beach is a mile long, a couple miles long. You know, you, and you talk to some of these people, and I have actually over time in my younger days, you know, you find out, well, what, you know, how successful are you? And the guy says, I'm very successful. Why? Because I've, just, I, I've watched and I've observed where people are at and where things happen. And that, so that's where I go and gather. That's where I go and sift at the beach. So it's, it's kind of like that. I mean, we have to prioritize where we want to sift the sand so we can find that, that sort of golden nugget of information that allows our decision makers to make better decisions. You can't just say, well, start on that end and go to this end. You'll never, you'll never get there. You have to have a very prioritized system. And I will tell you, for the intelligence community, the president actually starts that. He's the one that directs what our national intelligence priorities will be. And from that, you know, that sort of spreads out down among the various intelligence systems that we have to go and answer those questions. Did those priorities get out of date fast enough? I mean, one of the arguments we heard when people asked, why were we listening in to or monitoring Angela Merkel's cell phone? The answer was somebody started that program in 2002 or 2003, and no one ever reviewed it lately. So do we have a problem here that contributes to the what our questioner is, has asked, which is it's very easy to start up new mm -hmm. things. It's very easy, very hard to kill them off. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of, I, I think that the, you know, the, the issue is about what, what legacy aspects of what we are doing out there continue. And so for all of us, and it's like coming out of, it's like coming out of Iraq or, or in Afghanistan, we're gonna have things that we turned on that you know, we're gonna have to you know, adjust from. And so I think the same thing, you know, got to learn to live without it. You do. You, yeah. And you just have to say that this is no longer important and, and what's the direction that we want to go. Got a question right up here. 
I'm Avatar, I'm a freshman at the college, and I have a question on behalf of one of our Twitter followers. It's, how do you ensure voices from outside the Department of Defense and Intelligence Committees are being heard inside the agency, generally, and in analysis? Yeah, great question, and that's partly why I'm here. Um, and our outreach to uh, academia, so, you know, the the uh, the schools that we that we deal with we, DIA we deal with about seventy eight universities and colleges around the country we recruit from them by the way from this school as well you know www.dia.mil um, so we also um, reach out to think tanks so we have a we have a great uh, relationship and interaction with. Uh, with a lot of people who are thinking about these similar issues and have access actually to, um, to other parts of other uh, aspects of the international system than we may have as, a, as a being in the intelligence community. So we do, that, that is a, that's a big part, you know, for me personally, I spend a lot of time uh, on outreach and making sure that we're working with, with others than those just in the intel community, because otherwise we would just, you know, we'd be, uh, you know, basically doing intel for intel's sake, and that's never a good thing. What we have to do is do, do intelligence work for a much broader community, and these days that broader community also includes our international partners. And so I would tell you that even our outreach to our international partners, both intelligence and other, cap and other aspects, their uh, academic institutions, their think tanks, also play into uh, the assessments that we make? That's a great question, thanks for asking. You know, we've had three questions from freshmen so far. No. I can tell you, when I was a freshman, I don't think I had the confidence to go do this. Sir. Good evening, sir. Uh, my name's Frank Brumell. I'm a first year master's in public policy candidate here at the Kennedy School. My question has to do with after 9-11, one of the main complaints was that intelligence agencies weren't sharing information enough. And so there was uh, kind of an explosion in just the amount of information that almost anyone could grab on whether it was the, the CIPRANET or JWICS. With After the Bradley Manning uh, releases, that was kind of curtailed a bit and brought back. I left active duty uh, right as the Snowden leaks occurred, so I don't know what's happened since then. But do we run the risk of going too far backwards as a result of these releases and the leaks in order to protect the information and end up hampering ourselves in trying to maintain that interagency communication that was so important in the wake of 9-11? Great question. Are yeah. we re-stovepiping? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one, thanks for your service. And, uh, and uh, you know, I congratulate you on, on uh, taking the steps that you've taken to be where you're at. Um, our, our watchword in the United States intelligence community is integration. Okay? So the vision is that we will be a nation made more secure by becoming fully integrated. And so it's kind of like you know real estate, location, location, location. In the intelligence business, it's integration, integration, integration. You cannot live in your own world, you know, licking your own ice cream. You have to, uh, you have to integrate. You have, you know, if there was one thing that we learned on the battlefield was fusion of operations and intelligence was bringing capabilities and people and talent together physically. And so what we have to do is constantly, um, you know, keep our workforces 
from the leadership level on down on this idea of being an integrated community. My, my deputy, as an example, is an officer from the CIA. But when, we, when you begin to look at, like even our structure, we have people from NGA, NSA, FBI, CIA, uh, NRO, inside of leadership positions in our organization. So it's not just sitting down together and sharing information. It's also about everywhere we are to be integrated. Uh, joint, joint duty, as an example. Joint duty in the United States intelligence community now is a must, especially for our civilians, if you want to be promoted to a senior executive service, to like a flag level rank uh, in the civilian side. So integration is across the board, and it's definitely uh, in the idea of sharing of information. And, you know, I mean, one of the things I was responsible for in one assignment was basically running the, the monthly information sharing council for the, uh, for the uh, IC, where everybody's around the table, all the agencies are represented, and if there was an issue, it would come to our level, and, we, and at the DNI level, national intelligence level, and we would, we would adjudicate it, and we would make a decision about it, and if, if uh, there was an issue, we would resolve it right then and there. So there's actually not only you know, a good idea, which is integration, but there's a great process that we have so if somebody is out there and says, well, they're not sharing, we actually do have a, a, a very disciplined mechanism in place to make it happen. And I'll tell you, for our military forces, it's a constant battle because they are out there in a the battlefield or, or out there in, in areas of responsibility like Africa or, or Southeast uh, Asia, and they, they need to share more and more with our partners out there, our foreign partners. And so uh, we, we do that pretty well because integration clearly is with ourselves, but it's also we have to, and we're, we're looking at a lot of different ways to integrate with foreign partners to allow them to use our intelligence to do, uh, the, you know, to take care of their own national security issues. Because our intelligence system is actually, uh, I, I uh, kind of, I call it one of our national strategic advantages when it's precisely focused uh, it, it really is uh, probably one of the best capabilities that we have for our national security. But Hicks' point is that the sharing does make you more vulnerable when you have an insider threat like Snowden. And think about what Snowden downloaded. Um, huge number of files from mm -hmm. GCHQ, the, the British equivalent of, mm -hmm. of the NSA. Australian files. Uh, files from other countries that all share our intel. Um, and just as Bradley Manning, who was sitting out in, I guess, Iraq at the time, found State Department cables, mm -hmm. and of course, he was not a diplomat. So I guess the question is, how do you, how do, you do that balance? I mean, there are a lot of people in the intel community who are saying right now, we have taken this too far. Yeah. Uh, you know, every situation has to be judged for what the issue is that you're sharing information about. But you know the, what, what you just described about Snowden kind of address you know answers part of my question about how far outside of just NSA he went you know because he, he's already disclosed some of these other some of these other areas but I would tell you that uh, for us the answer is well out of NSA well, well outside yeah. I mean for us uh, yeah I think that it's you know it's out there the you know the challenge of should I share but you know we can't sit and wring our hands about the possibility for another individual who's, you know, sort of in your ranks. It, you know, we just, we don't, 
I mean, if we did, then we would just shut the entire system down. So it is a big, it's a big issue, but integration is the way that we are going to move forward. And that means working together as a, as a community, you know, on behalf of the nation's security. Not perfect, not a perfect system. Gentleman up there can wait. Thank you, my name is Gregory. I'm a sophomore at the college. Uh, you've spoken about, I guess, information sharing and efficiency, and now I'd like to ask you a question about the delineation of responsibility. Given the recent rise of the defense clandestine uh, service and the, I guess, consternation about who gets to control the CIA's predators and um, other drone technologies, where do you think the line between the Department of Defense and other members of the intelligence community should be and why? On, well, I guess on those issues, on those couple of things that you mentioned? Yeah. Well, y yes, and also just like how you he kind of approach two, the issue. You mentioned two, drones and the human. defense. Uh, yeah. but um, I, I think that we have to, uh, you know, I mean, if you don't hear about it here, it's, you know, everything that we have to give to, frankly, the president or, you know, our combatant commanders, our, our senior military leaders, are options and tools. And so, you know, without kind of going through the litany of, you know, whether or not uh, we need those, those couple of capabilities, uh, we need as many options and as many tools as we can possibly afford, and then they need to be, uh, uh, you know, they need to be accountable and they need to be um, managed and, and, you know, and led properly uh, for what they provide, for what they provide to our, you know, any, any decision maker. So I think that um, whether it's human, whether it's, you know, uh, the world of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, which is, you know, what you're talking about with the specific capability on like a drone, for example, uh, whether it's, you know, other types of weapon systems that we think we are going to need, or whether it's uh, how we might leverage intelligence sharing with a foreign partner to, to gain an advantage, you know, how we do that. Those are tools and those are options that uh, as many as we can provide, as many as we can afford, uh, we should have them. The president gave a speech last year in which he said that the drone program would move as quickly as it could out of the covert world, many of the drone attacks run by the CIA now and so forth, and back into your building, into defense. How's that going? Yeah, now, so th those are those are policy issues that are being discussed. Well, he, he, uh, he said he made a decision. I yeah. mean, he, he's trying to move it. But my, my question is, how is it operationally? Do you, do you see that that's happening at this point? Well, I, I would just say that uh, it's, still in, it's still under debate. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still being, uh, you know, um, judged. And, you know, and you're going to have, of course, multiple sides on, on the issue as to which direction it should go, whether it, you know, it should be where it's at. But I, I would just tell you that in the, in the world of uh, how we do business and, and in, the, you know, in the Department of Defense, those are capabilities that we do have, we do use, and uh, we use very effectively. Right here. Sir, uh, Scott Menorah, I'm one of the, the hey Scott, executive fellowship. Uh, sir, I, I was one of the best analysts in the world right here. One of the best intelligence analysts in the world. I'm, I'm serious. This guy has, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So the question I have is kind of a big ballpark question for you, which is after 13 years of war um, with the withdrawal from Iraq and uh, reduced footprint in Afghanistan, 
Uh, we're looking at uh, prisoner releases in Afghanistan. We've seen massive jailbreaks in Iraq, civil war in Syria, uh, destabilization along North Africa. Looking at that uh, in your career, what kind of a report card would you give uh, the United States government in the war on terrorism as you look at, at, at where we stand now, vice where we were on 9-11? Yeah. And I, again, I just say to you, Scott, you know, just unbelievable. Uh, I mean, if you just had a glimpse of what Scott has served in and for, uh, you'd be blown away uh, by what he's done. So um, I, I think that um, in the, man, it's a really, it's a really difficult question uh, and an issue because the only way to get terrorists off of a battlefield is to capture them, turn them, meaning make them, you know, turn their, from whatever their ideology is, or to kill them. Those are really, there's only three ways to get them off the battlefield. So if you capture them, and to kind of go back to like, you know, the tragedy of Abu Ghraib, which, which uh, we experienced, and then to try to change the system, which we did, to be able to make it uh, much more accountable, uh, much more to standard, and and uh, and much more effective. And now you know you you bring these people to justice through, frankly, through their own country's systems to the degree that you can. Uh, some you know that are that are brought back to this country that are indicted, etc. Some in some cases we've seen that recently. I, I do think that we. We have to, a national debate, and I know what's going on because we were asked about it during this, the, the testimony to the Senate Armed Services Committee the other day. You know, what do we do with them? That is a, that is clearly a, a policy issue and whether a Gitmo closes down and something else, you have something else somewhere else, whatever those decisions are. I will tell you from an intelligence perspective, and you know this, that we gain an enormous amount out of those individuals who we are able to, to uh, capture. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, I'll sort of leave it at that because uh, we, we actually are able to understand a heck of a lot more um, when we do that. And so I'm, I'm really, um, by what I've seen in terms of uh, prison breaks that, that have occurred, you know, uh, through the sort of the trans region, and, and others who have uh, been let out, uh, I think they're, they're all very dangerous. They don't typically uh, change in some of these prison systems that they do have, not, not, not in all cases. Um, and so that's a, that's a dangerous thing because when they go back out on the, the, you know, the global battlefield, uh, they are likely, uh, in, to a certain percentage, go right back to what they were doing. And in many cases, they're much more connected, they're much more networked, they've probably done some, they've learned a lot more in the systems that they're in, in the prison systems that they're in, so because we've seen all these things. So it, this is an issue that, is it existential to our country? Is it going to cause our country to collapse? Or is it something that we should be concerned about because we don't want to have, you know, a mall attack like we saw in Nairobi or a Mumbai-style attack like we saw in India? You know, we just don't want to have those kinds of things, and frankly, I'm surprised we, we haven't. Scott raised Afghanistan, and it, it raises an interesting question. We've, we've read about two options for the end of the year. The president has said by end of 2014, 
the United States will be out of Afghanistan. He's raised the possibility if they can reach an agreement that President Karzai is willing to implement, that we would leave a, a small resident force, maybe mm -hmm. up to 10,000, in country. The other option, called the zero option, would be everybody out, we close down the bases we have in Afghanistan. Tell us how that would affect, if, we ha if the U.S. had to go to the zero option, what impact would it have on your intel on Afghanistan and on Pakistan? Uh, in in uh, so anybody that studies and, and hopefully in some of the some of the stuff that I've looked at uh, coming up here and, and talking today, you know the study of warfare is really interesting because there's a lot of a lot of aspects of everything that we do, and there's something called an economy of force principle. Principle of economy of force means when you go to apply that principle you have to increase your intelligence capabilities. You have to increase your intelligence collection because when you go to an economy of force, that means you have less forces to do things with, whatever it is, whether it's zero, 10,000, or whatever the number is. And so therefore, you need a lot more intelligence capabilities to be able to, to figure out what, what's going on and, and what's happening. So from our perspective, we are, uh, you know, given whatever the options are, whatever the whatever the, the final decision is by the president, uh, we are working with ISAF, we're working with Central Command, you know, the International Security Assistance Forces, we're working with our international partners, uh, principally out of NATO, on what is the scoping of the intelligence requirements for all of these options. And there are a range of them, and my, my belief is that you're going to need, um, you're going to need, not, I mean, we still have, we have a quite a bit out there now, but you're going to need to scope it correctly in order to uh, continue to assess what the issues are going on out in that theater because we still know that there are elements of al-Qaeda that remain out there. We still, you know, call sort of the, the Afghan-Pakistan, you know, Fatah area, sort of AQ Central or AQ Core. So we know that there are still militants and other militias out there, other, other insurgent organizations. So uh, the Haqqani network is still out there. So, I mean, you have organizations that uh, that are still going to be dangerous, whatever the options are. Well, thank you, General Flynn. You have given us a great tour of the horizon, both uh, countries and hotspots, but also uh, big global transitions. I thank you for coming up, for uh, taking questions. I thank all of you for what was terrific questions along the way, and I hope you'll come back. Thanks great. So Thanks much. a lot, David. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was good.